3: You're in for a special treat today, hour one of our best of the best broadcast, which features the winning documentaries of our annual competition, basically some of the best radio stories of the year. Um, And if you like today's podcast, or if you appreciate any of the work that Third Coast does, we'd be so incredibly thankful if you consider supporting us with your money, to be blunt. Um... We just launched our individual giving campaign, and the money we raise from people like you is crucial to us. Go to our website, thirdcoastfestival.org, if you'd like to help out. All right, enjoy the podcast, and have a happy, happy Thanksgiving.
4: From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, I'm Gwen Maxai, and this is Best of the Best, the 2012 Third Coast Festival broadcast.
5: I
6: thought I could drown all my sorrows, but then I figured out that my sorrows could swim.
7: I'm nearly 85, I said I've had a good life. I said, I don't know if I want to die today, but I don't mind tomorrow. Sleep is a surrender, of course.
8: But you don't look like somebody who's dance tango. I probably look very nerdy.
4: Today, we bring you the best audio documentaries of the year, winners of our Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition. But before we share these amazing stories, just a little bit about who we are and what we do. Third Coast is an independent arts organization in Chicago dedicated to celebrating great radio. I
9: remember that first person I laid
4: out. All year long, we gather the best stories from around the world and share them in a variety of ways. Radio, on the internet, in our podcast, at live listening events, wherever we find open kindred ears. We also host a worldwide competition, and one of the highlights of our year is dressing up, drinking a little bubbly, and basking in the glow of this year's winners. Film has the Academy, audio has Third Coast. Ahoy! Welcome to the Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation 2012 Awards. We're the Kitchen Sisters. That was Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva, MCs of the Third Coast Awards Ceremony. This year, of the 275 entries that poured into the competition from 17 different countries, including Brazil, South Africa, Taiwan, and Egypt, nine earned top honors. On Best of the Best, you'll hear these winning stories and interviews with the producers who made them.
10: I mean, look, we were not sure this was going to work. We were really not sure this was going to work. But we we were committed to creating something new.
4: Let's start with one of this year's honorable mentions, a portrait of a couple in midlife who up until recently spent most nights on the couch in front of the TV, living a self-admittedly tame existence. And then something happened something that no one could have predicted, not even their daughter, especially not their daughter, Yowei Wei-Sha, who tells the story.
11: You know that moment when your parents turn out to be people you never thought they were?
12: We'll see this time how long you can keep your
11: white jacket on. <laughs> yeah,
8: depending on how cold it is, mm. or oh, how warm it is, or so how hot you are, mommy.
11: Whoa. My mom and dad came to the U.S. from Taiwan in the 70s, they were poor graduate students, speaking little English. Now they have a big quiet house in the suburbs and a solid 401k, basically the American dream. But something was missing.
12: It's just so amazing, you know, here in Buenos Aires, you talk to the superstar, the my dream girls.
11: That something turned out to be the tango.
12: On YouTube, I've been watching them, follow them for four years. And then you actually talk to them and you see them dancing in front of you.
11: They have rented an apartment in Buenos Aires, and my mom is practically levitating.
12: The first week is just uh, breathless, you know, just the pace is so fast. I remember one day I hit five spots.
11: I'm kind of like a, you know, bumblebee. They're just a tiny bit embarrassed. And so they've asked to be anonymous for the story. Mom wants me to call her Alejandra, after a dancer she admires. The other night, Alejandra danced with this guy called Bravo Bruno.
12: Bravo Bruno. Yes, he actually air-kissed me. <laughs> he said, uh, you are wonderful. Of course, they're always sweet-talking, you know. <laughs> Buenos Aires men, they're the expert in flirting.
11: It wasn't always like this. Before they started dancing tango, a typical evening for my parents involved watching TV or listening to Mozart. they
8: either lying on the sofa or lying on the bed, so it's kind of boring, actually.
11: Nothing wrong with it. But over the years, they didn't have much in common anymore. My dad likes science and gadgets. My mom's into shopping, going to church, and managing the family finances. Dad tried to get her into sailing, but she always complained. These are the last people you'd imagine doing the dance of passion. Especially my dad. Um, I mean, Sebastian. People are always surprised.
8: They say, uh, but you don't look like somebody who's dance tango.
11: He's a medical research scientist. Khaki pants, a plaid shirt, and big metal frame glasses.
8: I probably look very nerdy. This is my personality. I, I, I don't want to be... Uh, very showy. Do, ...do dramatic things, do very sexy things.
11: It all began one summer a few years ago. My parents took a two-week cruise to South America, where they offered tango lessons. When they got home, my mom started borrowing old dresses of mine to go dancing. These were the mini dresses I used to hide under a big jacket. My sisters Yomei and Yolan noticed something was up too.
3: I come home from school and Mommy's in her tango outfit, you know, like pink leopard print tights. They lost a lot of weight when they started doing it. She'll grab me as I come in through the door and start using me as a, as a leader.
12: They were very excited and they were telling me to go watch some videos on YouTube of their teachers.
3: They recruited two of my friends to tango, so I, like, I guess I stopped seeing them as much.
12: Okay, so it used to be before it would be opera or Rachmaninoff Piano Concertos, but now it's just, or business radio, (laughs) but now it's just tango music. It's like tango music 24 hours a day.
11: My parents stepped up their commitment to tango from one night to five nights a week. And then fate struck.
3: In 2008, Hurricane Ike, it destroyed the roofs of our house. So they decided just, you know, why not renovate the first floor so that we could have an area just to tango.
11: And that's what they really did. They knocked out the wall between our living room and family room for a dance floor. When I started asking my dad about the tango, I discovered another side of him.
8: I didn't become an artist, and partially because my family wasn't rich enough to let me do something impractical or let me spend extra money to to learn music instruments or to do art.
11: My scientist dad has the soul of an artist.
8: It's a feeling that uh, you are communicating with another human being, not just to say hi, not just uh, pretend to be friendly. You know, you actually have to f- be able to feel the music and then convert your feelings into the motion.
11: For my mom, on the other hand, Tango is more of an outlet for her obsession with technique and details. I like
12: to focus on the technique first, because I know at least whether I'm doing
3: correctly,
12: and then uh, how to do it uh, artistically. I-, I don't know. I just cannot stand watching people had a bad technique and moving on the floor.
11: Why not? Like, where does this come from, this perfectionism?
12: I don't know. I really don't know. I just feel that... This is art, you know, you cannot abuse that. <laughs> you cannot trash it.
11: And here's something I didn't expect. Now my parents have more tango problems than real life problems. You
12: claim that you know how to dance in close embrace. You you keep on saying that I know how to dance close embrace with other women. So I'm trying to feel that well, very did
8: strange. The, did the I Jew mean I've never
11: seen them fight like this. The night before, the tango instructor taught my parents a position called close embrace. It's where the couple stands facing each other chest to chest and has full or partial body contact. You guys just kind of emerged from the bedroom and then started dancing.
8: We were arguing <laughs> on the on the bed for a long time, so... Uh, okay, so...
11: About close embrace?
8: About uh, uh Oh yeah, the typical argument is that mommy always... Uh, Blame on me, okay? She said, oh, I'm not doing
12: this correct, I'm not doing that correct. No. For almost 40
11: minutes, Alejandra and Sebastian zip around barefoot in their pajamas, trying to correct each other's steps.
12: Yeah, push the link on me, okay. No, I don't, I don't link on
11: him. Yes,
12: you know, I tend to criticize and be very judgmental. And uh, with Tango, I, I have to learn to uh, uh, keep my patient and keep my temper. Slower.
8: Yeah. Sometimes it hurts people's feelings. Yeah. I mean, you know, he could hurt my feelings. Perhaps uh, before we solve the problem, we shouldn't be dancing. Yeah, shouldn't be dancing with each other.
11: From your daughter's perspective, seeing you guys dance together is very special for us. But has it also? I don't know. Brought more romance to your marriage too? That wasn't. I, I that really,
8: you know, I, I think that that's probably a misconception. I'm sure some people who like to dance tango, they may be looking for romance with uh, their partner or to meet with uh, opposite sex friends. But uh, uh, not for us. I sort of feel that we are two separate professional dancers. It's like an opportunity to to perform.
11: I don't believe him. And neither do my sisters.
3: I feel like they flirt a lot more when I walk in on them, like, I don't know, in the bedroom, like, they're just more giggly. He likes to joke um, about
12: how people will think
3: that he's her dad or something,
12: and how many men will ask her to dance.
11: When my parents dance together, my mom has a glow about her. A famous tango teacher named Natasha Paharov gave my parents some coaching. And she started to cry.
13: <laughs> it really looks like you, you have a life full of things that you really share and in a, in a very deep commitment. It's really emotional. <laughs>
11: emotional.
12: <laughs> I'm just like that. The artist. <laughs> artist. Artist.
11: Now I've noticed little things, too. How my dad always makes sure my mom has a partner to dance with before asking someone else. How my mom tries on tango clothes for him to admire and approve, and how they never get jealous. That's love.
8: Yeah, I, I would like to die when while I was dancing a tango with a beautiful woman. Okay, I just drop that. that. That's the way. I think it's the best way for me to die.
11: Not with mommy, the well, beautiful
8: mommy, mommy is a beautiful tango woman. Yeah.
4: My Parents' Extreme Tango Makeover was produced by yo Shaw with editors Michelle Siegel and David Krasnow for Studio 360 with Kurt Anderson, a co-production of PRI and WNYC. It won an honorable mention in our 2012 competition. When yo accepted her award, she read from an email her dad sent her after hearing her story. yo
11: I listened to your program yesterday morning. I like it very much because I'm proud of your accomplishment, not because I like to be on the (laughs) NPR. I never thought that our tangoing activity could be an inspiration for you, but if it is, we will certainly continue our good work.
4: (laughs) To see a picture of yo or any of this year's winners, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Our Best New Artist Award recognizes a producer who's new to the field and shows great promise and ingenuity. This year, that someone is Allison Swaim. Before taking off on a year-long adventure on a cargo ship, she went for a trial run, a nine-day stint on the Great Lakes aboard the good ship Calumet. Since this was just a warm-up trip, Allison wasn't even thinking about making a radio piece. But like any good reporter, she brought her recorder along.
14: One thing I learned on the ship? Was that the work never stops? It doesn't matter if it's day or night. There's always somebody up. There's always something to do. Go time! Right now, we're coming into Meldrum Bay, Ontario, on the north shore of Lake Huron. Straight ahead, there's a limestone quarry. We back up slowly to the dock. As soon as the boat's tied up, the loading rig swings out and starts dumping small gray chunks of limestone into the first cargo hold.
2: How close are we? 48 There out, boys. 48,
14: okay. All the guys who are working carry radios. On a boat this big, it's the only way they can communicate to keep the whole operation running smoothly.
15: We've all been working together for so long that we know each other's voice. You don't ever have to say who you are. Alrighty. It's hard when you come on board and you're new. You you don't know anybody's voice yet. It gets confusing.
16: (laughs) When I first started and I had a radio, whatever was said on that thing, Okie doke. Uh, as long as it didn't say Kyle, you know. No need to alert your ears.
14: Kyle's the new guy on board. It's his first season. He found out about the job through a friend.
16: Figured what better way to make money than be out on a boat for a month you can't spend it.
14: Starting salary averages to about fifty grand a year. It's pretty good money to start out with no training. So Kyle filled out the paperwork and applied for a job with Grand River Navigation Company.
16: And then they called me and they go, okay, you're leaving tomorrow.
14: The company van picked him up in Cleveland and dropped him off 300 miles away in South Chicago at the KCBX Coal Terminal.
16: I go, this is the boat. I go, holy hell. It's kind of big.
14: It's a huge boat. I mean, 600 feet long. It's like two football fields. And the deck tower is like 30 feet above the water.
16: Got to the ladder, climb up on it, you know, hoist your stuff up, go on deck, and then they go, we'll change, you're ready to work.
14: He didn't really know what to expect or what to pack.
16: Like first off, the boat doesn't have shampoo. Nothing like having your head full of freaking coal dust and you're trying to wash your hair out.
14: Life out here takes some getting used to. This isn't a cruise ship. I mean, they're hauling coal, rocks, salt.
16: After we uh, get
2: spotted here, Ken, go ahead and give Kyle a call.
14: We're pulling into Grand Haven, Michigan now to unload this limestone at a power plant. Kyle swings over, clambers down the ladder into the workboat, rose ashore to help tie up the boat. There's a chain of command on the boat. Kyle's at the bottom of the totem pole. He's a deckhand.
16: Usually the one, like, they look around and their battery's beeping, and they're like, hey, go get me a battery.
14: Kyle answers to the bosun and the ABs, who answer to the mates, and everybody answers to the captain. ABs and mates work regular shifts, but Kyle works whenever he's needed.
16: I was out from 7 last night to 2 in the morning. Then I came out at 6 o'clock.
14: Kyle slept through his first wake-up call this morning, so... You want to tell her, Kyle? Tell her about what happened to you when you don't wake up on time?
16: Yeah, two minutes late, they come to your room with a bucket of water and give you a thorough douching, and uh, it definitely wakes you up, along with soaking your bed, your sheets.
14: The crew rotates on a 28-14 schedule, 28 days on the boat, 14 days home, then they're back out for another month. Being away from home, you miss a lot. Kyle just turned 21 yesterday.
16: Yeah, that sucked. He was out here. Tch, it was just another day.
14: This job's not for everyone.
15: A lot of guys come out and they just don't get it. <laughs> they, they don't stick around long because they're miserable. That's Ed. So.
14: Ed's been sailing for 10 years. He's got a tattoo of two anchors on his right hand from his time in the Coast Guard. Ed's seen a lot of guys start and quit. One walked off right in the middle of his shift.
15: I was mad because I would just gotten to bed. And the first mate walks in, he's like, so-and-so just quit. Time to get back out of bed after I just showered and laid down.
14: Kyle's thought about quitting before.
16: I remember one time, getting yelled at for cleaning out cargo holds. And...
14: Okay, so the crew has to clean really thoroughly every time they switch cargo to keep from contaminating a load. So somebody has to go down inside the cargo hold.
16: So you had to go down there with the hose. You had to poke with a stick. So
14: to... Kyle's down there. It's like a
15: cave. It's dark. There's no air movement down there. It's God's
14: safety hunter's on. It's not
15: like you have a flat surface to walk on. It's
14: God's hose. You're
15: dragging a hose around and getting soaking wet. And... He's
14: poking around, trying to get the rocks out of the cracks. And it
16: still wouldn't come out. And then, like, half of it turned out to be not even like stone. It was just like rust.
14: Meanwhile, the mate's up on deck with his flashlight looking down over the edge.
16: Like, you're down there and this person's yelling at you because. Their job's on the line, and you're just getting pissed off because, you know, you're doing the best you can, and you almost want to go in your room and pack your shit up and just, you know, leave, but...
14: But he didn't. Instead,
16: sat on the swing outside and rocked around, looked at the water, called a few people, and told me to stick with it, so I did.
14: It's been six months since Cal came on board. He's made it this far.
16: Probably stick with it till the end of the season at least. Decide what I want to do next year. Torture will be over soon enough.
4: That was an excerpt from Big Ship Diary, produced by Allison Swaim with editor Cecilia Weissman for the WBEZ series Front and Center. To listen to the complete story and see pictures of Allison's year-long worldwide journey on a cargo ship, go to our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. You're listening to Best of the Best, the 2012 Third Coast Festival broadcast. I'm Gwen Maxai. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is an independent arts organization in Chicago. Our work is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Today, we're listening to winners of our annual documentary competition, but you can also hear great radio from around the world anytime on our Third Coast podcast. Just visit thirdcoastfestival.org to subscribe. Coming up next, a renowned pop star takes you on an overnight flight you'll never forget.
2: The cabin lights have been extinguished. The in-flight entertainment system has been enabled. You can let your seat back and
4: relax. ¶¶ Welcome back to Best of the Best from the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. I'm Gwen Maxine.
2: Yeah, walking down the aisle looking for my seat. I've got my board in seat 26F, I think. This, yeah, excuse me. Yeah, I've got the window seat, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, good
4: evening, this is... Our next story, according to this year's judges, quote, pushes the medium forward, mixing sound design, audio theater, and storytelling. In our 2012 Third Coast Bronze Award-winning story, Jarvis Cocker boards the Red Eye, a transatlantic flight of the imagination, and peers down at the human dramas below as the world slowly rotates. As he reaches cruising altitude, Jarvis finds himself gripped by stories of life and death, a shepherdess in the midst of a difficult birth, a transplant nurse on the late shift, and a priest who performs exorcisms, all interwoven in a sonic melange.
2: We're now in the Royal London Hospital in Whitechapel. Meet Helen. She's a transplant coordinator. That means if a patient dies, she has to deal with organ donation issues.
9: I'll be honest with you, it's not an easy job. Very demanding, very challenging. Does a family say? Yes. Part of my job role is to organise theatres to find a timing slot for theatres. They often go into the emergency theatre. Hello Maggie, it's Helen speaking. And it can often go into the very early hours. Hello Maggie, did you get my email? Huge amount of organisation. Lovely. Yes please. That's right. So we have a potential tomorrow. It's very still
2: now, isn't it? Most of the other passengers are asleep. Wanted to be fresh for those important meetings tomorrow, I suppose. But I can't sleep. I never have been able to. It's like there's a low grade background hum of dread that I just can't ignore.
10: Exactly last time.
2: <laughs> the difficult birth continues as the night draws on.
7: You alright, Till? Do you want to ring Matt again? I hate losing him every time.
2: But this one's not lost yet.
10: <laughs> Do you
3: want to bring Matt? Oh.
7: The wife used to, you know, I used to bring these half dead ones round and she used to perform the miracles down here with them. We had them in little boxes, cardboard boxes down here, you know, by the Rayburn, yeah, to get them warm, you see. Over the heather when the weather is cold, yawn chanter to the mother, pip, she counted Some of them survive and some of them don't. It's a bit of a heartbreak, but you, you get hard over the years, you know, and just take it in your, in your stride. Good old little sheep, come death, come dog, yawn chanter to the mother, pip, she counted
9: I've been nursing now since um, 1984, I remember that first person I laid out 28 years ago. A little old lady, a little old Irish lady, and she died. And I had to help the other nurses. I was a student nurse. I remember her face to this day. It was tragic because she was on her own. I remember feeding her um, porridge the the previous day and she wanted salt on it. No milk or sugar, but she wanted salt. And I found that really unusual because I never... Had to give anyone salt on their porridge, apparently it was very usual little Irish lady very very thin, but she was alone and she died and it wasn't expected and um, I still remember that poor lady to this day after that, everything just it was a job that I had to do, and I tried to do it as well as I could.
2: This evening is a little bit south of where we might normally expect to go. Uh, the reason for that is that we're taking advantage of some very strong... Some people don't enjoy plane travel because there's no sense of actually traveling. It's more like being in a lift for a very long time. You're in one place, the door closes, and when it opens again, you're in another.
1: Every time I use a key, I'm reminded that I live in a fallen world. I just wish I lived in one where there were no locks or keys, let alone alarms.
2: And a new character emerges from the darkness, the vicar of St. Edward's Cambridge.
1: I'm going to switch on um, various of the lights in the church.
2: Compline, at Girton College, Cambridge. Another way to deal with the darkness, maybe.
1: It was the very last office or sequence of prayer in the monastic days. It was good night prayers for monks, and it was a kind of liminal service between the day and the night, and between going. It's the last thing you said before you went to sleep, and sleep is a surrender, of course, and a forgetting. Sleep is a little death, a little letting go. And so they gathered together in one place all those wonderful passages in the Psalms and the Scriptures which were about that kind of trusting yourself back to the one from whence you came, says, you know, Into thy hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. Words from the Psalms, but also, of course, words from Jesus on the cross as he breathes himself into God. And they also gathered together those senses of the fear of the dark and named them and asked for safety and deliverance.
2: You're in one place, the door closes, and when it opens again, you're in another.
1: As well as being one of the priests here and a chaplain at Girton, I have a a role um, more widely in the diocese as what's called a bishop's advisor on deliverance ministry. And um, that simply means that I'm together with others available where uh, a parish priest might find themselves confronted by somebody who really feels from within and is distressed by the thought that they are subject to some form of spiritual or they might even call it demonic oppression. I've once or twice been called late at night to situations where people in a household are terrified and won't go into a room or... um, Yeah, they feel they've seen things or things have happened and I've gone to the house and wondering what would be the case and seen real fear on the faces of the people I've, I've encountered. Now, it takes a certain amount of conscious choice not to become party to that fear. My job is not to be party to this fear. To remember that very, very beautiful saying of Jesus, not quoted often enough, perfect love casts out fear. He uses it. Actual language of exorcism himself there <laughs> casts out fear. I mean, I can remember in that particular situation, I didn't um, see any manifestations myself, but I was aware of being in a household full of fear, and I went into every room and um, prayed and and blessed it and prayed that prayer from Compline, in fact. Visit we beseech thee, O Lord, this place and drive from it all the snares of the enemy and may thy holy angels dwell with us to preserve us in peace. And we did actually, you know, restore calm and there was a young child in that household as it happened and that was where the calm needed to start.
2: At some point on the flight, there will be a lull and in that lull, you're left in your own company and you will have to face yourself. Maybe that's what frightens people on flights. And I put you on a bit of a downer.
7: No, I say, you know, I've, I've had a good life. This is what I told the doctor when he said to me, bypass. I said, no, not bypass. So he said, you're refusing the operation. I said, yeah. So he said, Why? I said, I'm nearly 85. I said, I've had a good life. I said, I don't know if I want to die today, but I don't mind tomorrow. Abide with me fast for the That's That's what I'm going to have at my funeral.
4: That was an excerpt from Wireless Nights, Overnight Delivery, produced by Lawrence Grisel with Neil McCarthy and Sarah Parker for BBC Radio 4. The story was narrated by Jarvis Cocker, frontman for the pop group Pulp. To hear the entire story, go to our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. I was able to sit down with Lawrence at the recent Third Coast Producers Conference to talk to him about his winning piece. Overnight Delivery is such a conceptual piece. You have Jarvis Cocker on this flight. He's kind of narrating us through these overlapping and interweaving stories unfolding on the ground. And then there are these huge themes, deliverance, life, death, resurrection, that kind of tie everything together. So how did this idea come together?
10: I suppose it wasn't really until we had the material, or we were at least well on the road to getting the material, that we actually sort of started to think, actually, there's some big themes here. And, of course, a lot of this is related to the time of year. It was Easter, so it was lambing season. So, actually, all of those ideas of birth, death and regeneration all kind of came together and kind of crystallised, I suppose. Um, Not wholly by design,
4: So the idea, though, of flying over the Earth's surface on an overnight red-eye flight, it wasn't the overarching through-line to begin with?
10: I felt that we needed to place Jarvis in a narrative of his own. And what it would give us is a, a kind of coherent role for Jarvis within the program, so that he's not just linking these pieces together, he actually is on his own journey
4: it sounds like in this case in particular that it just was was a, a living animal that kept kind of morphing
10: yeah i mean look we were not sure this was going to work we were really not sure this was going to work and there were many points along the wo- uh, along the way where we thought you know maybe this idea is just flawed maybe it's it, it's it's bad maybe it's a bad idea but we we kept going with it um, because we were, we were committed to creating something new. In it. And that's always a sort of dangerous undertaking.
4: That was Lawrence Griselle, winner of the 2012 Third Coast Bronze Award for Wireless Nights Overnight Delivery. Hear a longer version of my interview with Lawrence at our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. You're listening to Best of the Best, the 2012 Third Coast Festival broadcast. I'm Gwen Maxei. Coming up, the astonishing story of a man in Boston who survived a horrific massacre in Guatemala in the 1980s. 30 years later, he discovers one more survivor, and they have more in common than he could have ever imagined.
13: What could I say? I was happy. I was more happy than... Sad or I, I didn't know what to think about, you know? My mind was just blank.
1: Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
4: Welcome back to Best of the Best from the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX, the public radio exchange. I'm Gwen Maxine. Now we've come to our 2012 Third Coast Silver Award winner. The excerpt we're about to play for you is from an hour-long investigative piece on This American Life. When it opens, we meet Oscar. He's 31, living in Boston with his wife and kids. He is completely unaware that at the age of three, during a Civil War massacre in Guatemala, he was abducted by government soldiers called Caibiles. After murdering his entire family and almost everyone else in the village, one of the Cabile soldiers took Oscar and raised him as his own child. All in all, an estimated 180,000 people were killed in similar massacres all over Guatemala during the war, but no one had ever been held responsible. Enter prosecutor Sarah Romero, who was ordered by a judge to find Oscar, perhaps the missing link in her case against the Cabiles. But Sarah had already tried to find Oscar once before, a decade earlier, with no luck. We pick up the story when she returns to the task. Producer Habiba Nosheen narrates.
17: So Sarah got back to work. She traveled back up to Oscar's hometown, where she'd gone looking for him 10 years before. Back then, Oscar's uncle had stonewalled her. He refused to tell her anything about his nephew. This time, Sarah squeezed a bit more out of him he gave her two pieces of information. That Oscar's girlfriend was from a nearby town and that her nickname was La Flaca, the skinny one. Sarah went to the town, asked around about La Flaca, located her parents, and that's how she tracked down La Flaca and Oscar in Massachusetts and convinced Oscar to take a DNA test to see if he was actually a survivor from Dos Freddie Peciarelli, the forensic scientist who was working the case, was excited at the prospect. Usually, he's dealing with dead bodies, people who've been assassinated or massacred.
18: To actually be able to talk to one of the people that we're looking for is, is a privilege that I've never felt before.
17: In June 2011, Freddie took a swab of Oscar saliva, his DNA, back to Guatemala and ran a series of tests. One was against Ramiro, the other green-eyed boy who was taken from the massacre. To see if Ramiro was Oscar's brother, they also tested Oscar's DNA against the DNA of other people who were related to the victims of Dos Heras. On a Sunday night in August, Freddie called Oscar with the results.
18: I said, You know, remember that test we did? So I was, at that point, I was like a little bit nervous. You never know, you know? And uh, I told him I had the news, and the news is that Ramiro is not your brother.
13: He told me that we weren't brothers. I say i knew it <laughs> I know that wasn't true. He said, yes but uh, i haven't I haven't finished yet. You guys not brothers, but uh we compare with other peoples, and uh we find you that you have a father I say what are you talking about <laughs> It's your father? we find your father he said you are uh, one of the survivors
18: i just I just told him." Your father's not who you think he is. The, the guy who you think is your father is not your father. Your father is alive. His name is Tranquilino, and uh, he's old, but he's alive.
17: Yes, that's right. Freddie's team matched Oscar to his biological father, and that biological father is alive. He survived. Ara found him as part of her ongoing search for anyone related to the victims of Los Eres.
5: My name is Tranquilino
6: Castañeda Valenzuela. My name is Tranquilino Castañeda Valenzuela.
17: You hardly need a DNA test to know that Tranquilino is Oscar's dad. The resemblance is striking. Both have green eyes and curly hair. They're both thin. Tranquilino's 70, and he limps when he walks. When we met him, he wore a white cowboy hat and carried two machetes. Tranquilino's pregnant wife was killed at Dos Eres, along with all of his children, nine of them, or so he thought. For 30 years, he's lived alone in the jungle. He never remarried after the massacre, never had another child. And in the middle of our interview, Tranquilino interrupted with a request.
5: Now can I give the name of my children?
17: Of course,
5: of course. Esther Castañeda.
6: My firstborn was Esther Castañeda. Etelvina. The second one was Etelvina. Enma. Enma was the ah. third.
5: Sí, there was Maribel.
6: After that was Maribel.
5: Esther had three years She was
6: around 13 when she died.
5: One was Luz Antonio. De the same Then it
6: was Luz Antonio part of my sons.
5: Mm-hmm. De ahí estaba César.
6: Then it was César.
5: Este, César tenía seven.
6: César was seven
5: years old. Y de ahí vinieron otras dos hembritas.
6: Then two other girls. Odilia. Odilia.
5: Rosalba. And Rosalba. Anyone else? Sí. Alfredo.
17: Alfredo was Oscar's given name. Tranquilino was out of town when those happened, visiting relatives, when he learned about the massacre, that everyone, including his wife and kids, had been killed.
5: Uh, well, uh, I...
6: I I got all crazy.
5: I really can't
6: put into words, but I felt like I was stupid, dumb. I really thought I was becoming mad.
17: Tranquilino told us that after that, he just couldn't sleep. He would stay up night after night, patrolling his house. He says he started to lose his mind. He would forget simple things, like which turn to take to get to work. His head throbbed constantly.
5: Mire, mi situación es grande. Yo me puse a tomar perdidamente. Listen, I started to drink. Uh,
6: I was really, really deep into drinking. It was just
5: really, really, really deep. Because I was sad. Yo pensé, penas y que se podían nadar.
6: I thought I could drown all my sorrows, but then I figured out that my sorrows could swim.
17: When I met Tranquilino, as soon as he leaned in to say hello, I could tell he had been drinking. He told me it's still hard for him to talk about doseras without a drink. After 20 minutes, he broke down and said he couldn't continue. Freddy and Aura told us what it was like when they revealed the news to him that one of his children, his son Oscar, was still alive. They asked Tranquilino to come to Guatemala City. They needed to see him in person.
18: Well, he hadn't been told because you know he's old. He's like 75. You don't, you know, you want to be careful with with how you how you deal with this information. Uh, so when he was told, you know, I had a doctor standing by just in case. You know, mm-hmm. he had a heart attack. Oh yeah, I was afraid that you know he might uh you know be too excited about it or something.
5: Bueno,
9: se le dijo de que se había encontrado a. He was told that Oscar had been found, that a DNA test had been conducted, and that the results showed with 95% certainty that it was a match. And he would take his hat off, scratch his head, laugh, cry. He didn't know what to do because he wouldn't believe us. He thought that all his children were dead.
15: What was he saying?
9: Es increíble, es increíble, es increíble. Incredible, incredible,
17: mm-hmm. incredible. Here's how Tranquilino remembers it. He has a different interpreter.
5: First, uh, when they told me I wasn't happy, I was uh, s- sad somehow, and then in a bit of a shock, and I remember that because they had to give me some hard liquor for me to come back to my senses because I was in a bit of a shock.
17: If that wasn't enough to handle, there was more. One of the anthropologists walked in with a laptop. She turned on Skype, and there on the screen, sitting in Massachusetts, was Oscar.
5: We were there talking. She pulled my chair, she put it next to her. She grabbed me hard, and then she said, do you know the person, the young man on the screen? And and I said, no, I don't know who that is. And then she said, it's your son. I said, not him. And then I couldn't speak anymore.
13: I couldn't speak anymore. Yeah, when when we first see each other, he couldn't talk. He was just crying, and he say, "I can't talk."
17: Oscar just sat there, looking at Tranquilino. He didn't know what to say. Oscar was just three when he was taken from Dos Eras. Seeing this man triggered nothing for him, no memories. The first thought that he had was that Tranquilino looked really old. It was hard to believe that this was his father. Then Tranquilino spoke.
13: He say, uh, Alfredo. That was the first word that he say. Alfredo. And I say, yes, (laughs) yes, I'm Alfredo.
17: That name was familiar to Oscar because it's his middle name. The lieutenant kept it for him. He also kept Oscar's original last name, which is Tranquilino's last name, Castaniera. So Oscar realized that his full name, Oscar Alfredo Romero's Castaniera, is a combination of his biological dad's name and his Caibil dad's name. Tranquilino kept talking. He told Oscar that he was chubby as a kid, which was true. Oscar was chubby as a kid. Tranquilino told him he used to boss around his siblings even though they were older than him. To this day, Oscar says, that's still true. He is bossy. But the thing that really hit Oscar in the gut was something that was a mystery to him as a little kid.
13: He told me that I didn't have my teeth. And that was true. I didn't have my teeth for a long time.
17: Until he was eight or nine, he was missing a bunch of teeth. He says he looked like Dracula. Tranquilino told him his teeth had been rotten when he was young, so they had to pull them out.
15: When he said that, what did... What went off in your head? Then I started to, you know,
13: I started like, this is true. This is really happening.
18: I was right there. I was on the screen with them.
17: Here is Freddie.
18: We were all crying. (laughs) There wasn't a person in that room that wasn't crying. Everybody. It was, I don't know, it was amazing. It was one of the most fulfilling things I've done in my life.
17: But the happy ending for Freddie and Aura and Sarah didn't feel that way for Oscar. Oscar says it's hard to describe how he felt.
13: I, I don't even know what to, th- like, blank. You know, like, what could I say? You know, I was happy. I was more happy than sad. Or I, I didn't know what to think about, you know. My mind was just blank.
17: The difficult thing for Oscar is that he really loves the family that raised him. He wasn't treated the way other children who were stolen from massacres were often treated. Ramiro, for instance, the other boy who was taken from Dos he was treated horribly growing up, beaten, and used almost like a servant. But for Oscar, there's no one to easily hate. His whole life, he's looked up to Ramirez Ramos, the man he thought was his father.
13: It's very, very very tough because uh, he's still a hero for me.
17: Oscar never really knew Ramirez Ramos since he died when Oscar was so young. But growing up, he heard amazing things about him. His family praised the guy all the time. How he was the first in his class at military school. How he rose through the ranks and was able to pay for his sibling's education. In the end, Oscar's actually grateful to the lieutenant. He may have stolen Oscar, but he also saved him. Some 200 people were killed at Dos Infants, the elderly, all of Oscar's siblings, his pregnant mother. Imagine being taken out of that pile, Oscar says. Why me? We've tried to figure out why Oscar was taken, and the most plausible theory we've heard comes from Oscar's aunt. She told Sarah that Ramirez Ramos wasn't married, and he didn't have any children, and that his mother wanted a grandkid. She kept asking him to give her one. So one day, he showed up saying, this is my son. I had him with a woman I'm no longer with. You had said to me last time we met that um, you wanted to know more about your dad. Yes, while my producer Brian Reed and I were reporting this story, Oscar asked us if we could find out more about Ramirez Ramos, this man who chose him. So we did. Uh, you know, we've talked to a lot of people, and they've said different people have said different things. There's some good stuff, there's some descriptions, and there's some bad stuff. What, what do you want to know from what we've learned? All. You want to want know everything.
13: I, I want to know everything.
15: We should tell the bad stuff, some of it is going everything. to be upset. I
13: want to know everything. He's probably not going to change the way that I think about him, but I want to know.
17: We told Oscar, sitting at his kitchen table. It was very difficult. Some of what Cesar and Fabio said about Ramirez Ramos was positive. Soldiers looked up to him. They say they never saw him rape anyone. In fact, Cesar said Ramirez Ramos was angry about the rapes at Dos Herres. He heard him tell another lieutenant. This is an attack unit, not a rape unit. We asked them if they ever saw Ramirez Ramos kill anyone. Cesar said no. The lieutenant spent much of the massacre overseeing the operation from a tree trunk with the other commanders. But Fabio said yes. He definitely saw Ramirez Ramos kill people at the well. He said the lieutenant was actually showing soldiers how to use the sledgehammer to murder people. It's easy to give a blow to the head, Fabio heard Ramirez Ramos say as he was demonstrating. Fabio says this happened while Cesar was away guarding the perimeter, so Cesar didn't see it. We talked to a third person who knew Ramirez Ramos, a soldier who went to school with him and was stationed at a base with him before he became a Kybil. This soldier said Ramirez Ramos had a reputation for being bloodthirsty that he would dress as a civilian and go out on covert operations to capture people people. and torture them for For intelligence.
15: He called him a crazy sadist, someone who took pleasure in hurting people. Um, And that's basically what we've learned from the three people we talked to.
13: Obviously, if you're in the army at, t- at some point you you ended up gonna end up doing uh bad things uh, even if you don't want to but uh, killing yeah, killing is uh, as bad but
3: he
13: he wasn't bad with his family he wasn't you know It wasn't bad to me. It was my father for me. It was my father.
4: That was an excerpt from What Happened at Dos produced by Habiba Nosheen and Brian Reed, co-reported by Sebastian Rotella of ProPublica and Anna Arana of Fundacion Mepi, and edited by Julie Snyder, Nancy Updike, and Ira Glass for This American Life from WBEZ Chicago. The story was narrated by Habiba Nosheen and won the 2012 Third Coast Silver Award. You can hear the story in its entirety on our website, thirdcoastfestival.org.
17: This award really means a lot to me as a, as a Pakistani woman from a very conservative family. When I told my mom that I wanted to be a journalist, um, she said it was a completely inappropriate profession for a Muslim woman. So thank you for supporting a rebellious Muslim. <laughs> that was Habiba Nosheen,
4: accepting her award for What Happened at Dos Eres. I spoke with Habiba and her co-producer Brian Reed and asked them if they were surprised by Oscar's reaction when they told him what his Kybil dad had done
17: at the massacre. I was surprised, but I think I would have sup- been surprised at any answer. I think he just, He had so many pleasant memories that to make room for all the the trauma that was coming his way. And I think he needed to hold on to those to those good memories, too, Um, just just for his sanity. So I think I understood um, where he was coming from. Yeah, Yeah,
15: He's such a positive outlook. Like that was just an amazing thing. Like just talking to him, you know, which I feel actually like was a nice thing to have at the heart of the story as we were working on it for our, just for our own sanity and for our, the listeners, you know, sanity and, you know, and that in the like the face of all this madness and this like atrocity in this story, like there's just this like very actually optimistic, hopeful guy and who just deals with it very admirably.
4: There are some really, really difficult scenes in this piece, some of which we didn't play in this excerpt, but they're alluded to. I'm talking about the part of the story where you go into the gruesome detail of the Dos Massacre. Was it really hard for you guys to get this out of your heads? I mean, was it hard for you to move on after this story?
17: You would think that, you know, it's, you could just pack up and, and close your, your notes and, and be done with it. But it, it absolutely wasn't the case for me. I just, it was very haunting for me. I had lots of nightmares, lots of really, really horrible nightmares the process of creating radio that's vivid and th- that stays with you for a while is like you have to sort of be there and, and bring people back to that moment. I mean, there's something about that process that I think is, is psychologically pretty traumatic. I, I'm not sure if this was a print story, if, if it would have been as, as traumatic in the aftermath for me to deal with. It was precisely the medium that made it much more difficult because it was just so, so much more intimate.
15: There were some really heartbreaking moments, especially like interviewing Tranquilino. But then like back in the editing room, like it's to me, it's, it's like work. It's like building a house or something. You know, it's like construction work and it uh, can be a little bit emotionless. So, I fi- and I found that was helpful. I don't know if that makes me sound cold or something, but it is how like I, you know, treated it as work. It's like, we've got this thing to tell, and this thing to build and these are the parts. And obviously I recognized the emotion and felt the emotion as I was reporting it. But then that was like the, the you know, a month or two of stitching it together was like time to like... Just make it work.
4: Brian Reed and Habiba Nosheen, producers of What Happened at Dos Eres. Check out a longer version of our interview at thirdcoastfestival.org. In the summer of 2011, a judge handed down a verdict in the Dos Eres case. Three cabiles and another man were found guilty of murder and sentenced to a total of 6,060 years in prison. Oscar, who was in the United States illegally, was recently granted asylum from the U.S. government. Stories are a part of everything we do and say. Our conversations, jokes, films, sacred texts, history books, these are all full of story. It's as though story is part of our DNA, as though we need it to survive. Here at Third Coast, we do, and nothing thrills us more than sharing it with you. To hear all the winners of the 2012 Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition, see pictures from the award ceremony, peruse our library of over a thousand great audio docs, and find out about our year-round audio festivities, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. Tune in to Resound next week for Hour 2 of Best of the Best and find out who won this year's top prize, the Gold Award. Best of the Best is supported by Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping organizations everywhere communicate in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Boeing Company Charitable Trust, the Agadino Foundation, and the Menaki Foundation. Third Coast is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency, and was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. Best of the Best is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange, at prx.org.
3: You've been listening to the Third Coast podcast. Stay connected with us through Facebook and Twitter or by signing up for our email list at thirdcoastfestival.org. If you like what you heard today, consider writing us a review on iTunes or sending us a few bucks. As always, thanks for listening.
11: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.